0: Hey, welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. What if I was to tell you that there is a sports team that already operates like an esports team? That one being Paris Saint-Germain. They've got a judo squad. They've got a handball team. They've got a women's team, a men's team, and also various esports teams in different games competing around the world. I talked today to Talent Esports, who signed up with PSG recently. And wanted to talk about you know how they're I don't want to use the word revolutionizing because it's it's just so common but what they're doing over in the market throughout Taiwan with League of Legends uh, throughout Korea and throughout Singapore and Hong Kong, which is where they're based, and so many other countries there too. I I think they've got a bit of an innovative look. There's been so much discussion around teams operating more as agencies, less as teams, and teams going into merchandising and such, but I really want you to have a think about how these guys recruit their players, and how it might be different to others. You can hear probably my mechanical brain spinning up with some of this discussion that we have, and I had to think really hard throughout this, and it started to put some puzzle pieces together for me that I think I'll unpack in future podcasts and future data around how does a professional esports team actually pick the players that compete for them and how has that changed over the years within esports i really enjoy this conversation i hope you do too enjoy we're
1: live sean how are
0: you
1: good brother yourself oh thanks
0: good Good, man good so it's i like i like your merch it looks good
1: um that's a nice bit of uh gear that we got from paris air jordan stuff so hopefully um we have some Stuff that we can share that is our own with Paris, so we can talk a little bit about that. But um, yeah, Yeah. definitely um, something that we're we're angling towards on the merch side. There should be a lot of interesting stuff that's happening in the next couple of months from from Talon and PSG side. Yeah.
0: So you know, essentially for for those people watching, I guess I'll give like a quick end of the road explanation, and then I'll and then I'll let you walk us up to where we are today. So Mm. so Sean being you know the co-founder and CEO of Talon Esports, you know an esports company that's now partnered with PSG. Paris Saint Germain, and the second esports team to be so, and you know PSG being, as the title says in this in this video, um, and we'll probably say on the podcast as well, the most successful sports team in esports by quite a large margin. But could you just? educate everyone a little bit you know you've been on some of our content before you did a live pitching show we pitch for capital and a shark tank mm-hmm. style thing but yep. for those people who didn't listen it's probably a year and a half ago now i reckon can you just give yep. a bit of a brief rundown as to you know who you are what your relevance is in the gaming industry and, and what you're doing today
1: sure yeah my name's sean guys i'm the ceo co-founder of talent esports uh, talent esports is an esports platform that's based in apac uh we sort of have three key business lines the first one being uh, team management we run seven professional teams in sort of five different markets, covering mobile, console, PC, um, Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, as well as uh, Thailand. And our objective is actually to build the first true APAC team. You know, have a presence from Japan all the way down to Australia. Um, yeah, my background is kind of like a mixed background. You know, um, most recently I've been more in banking, finance, and equity research, and investment banking divisions at Barclays and CLSA. Uh, and most recently I had a hedge fund which was looking at alternative assets, but you know, a year and a half ago, we've decided to quit our jobs full time and do this. You know, I've been a gamer my whole life, um, but also a big fan of traditional sports from both coaching and playing. And uh, that's kind of how we came up with the sort of idea of talent and, you know, very much orientated towards performance management by diversifying into some new things. But um, yeah, that's how we built it. It's been around for three years. Realistically, we've been running it pretty heavily for like a year and a half since we quit our jobs. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that's, that's like the short end of sort of what we our story. So, the
0: interesting thing you said is you call you, you call yourselves a platform, not a team. Yeah. Can you can you explain more
1: why? Yeah. So that? the platform, like uh, we do have a whole bunch of different businesses that we do outside of just um, team management, right? So, for mm. example, we have a creative studio, and that creative studio, uh, which has you know capabilities in Taiwan, in Korea, in Hong Kong, and in Thailand, where we service uh, brands which are sponsors on behalf of talent, but also serve brands which aren't sponsors on behalf of talent. So. Essentially what we do, we can do videography, photography, 3D, graphics, marketing campaigns, consultancy, um, even events. And there's a lot of events that we actually be doing next year. Um, but that's why we call it a platform um, because we have a whole bunch of different business lines. The other third part is that we have an academy and it's not exactly a affiliate. It's, it's under talent umbrella, but we run it separately for our Overwatch and League of Legends teams where we take a lot of young talent, feed them through sort of our performance framework, and then hopefully mm. they can be fed into our teams and or... You know a lot of them often they get transferred into sort of bigger leagues in other regions Mm -hmm. so um, we continue to add more business lines the merchandise stuff is about you know i can say here now that we'll be launching that in the next couple of months and that includes lines with like nike with psg with um with carnival which is another streetwear brand plus our own line so that's another example of sort of how we're building and there's a whole bunch of um, educational stuff that we're looking at as well here in hong kong partnering with like a startup that's doing uh online education and in school education for like school networks globally and you know giving them like sort of esports content whether it be like how to stream how to build teams how to run tournaments um so there's a lot of passive things that we're doing not just on esports because i think you know for esports teams like you know the current way that revenue works like how how you can run a profitable team is quite difficult given the sponsorship dollars and sort of the tv rights deals are slowly being formed right now right so You know, for Mm -hmm. us, we want to have diversified revenue streams so that we're not reliant on, holy crap, we had a good year in performances. Therefore, it's a good year. It's rather, you know, we can control how every year is. You can get incrementally better by building out these additional business lines. Some of them are very passive, like we get royalties for doing certain things. But then, you Mm -hmm. know, we just try and like mix it up and have more diversified revenue streams. So we're not locked into just a team, right? Because I feel like right now in esports, it's difficult just to run a team even if you're getting big fat sponsorships, even if you're getting like big TV rights deals, because you know, the cost of running teams is actually reasonably high. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really true. So one other question then, so you said that you're operating seven different teams. Is that all under the Talon banner or is that multiple different
1: brands? Yeah, it's all under the Talon umbrella. Uh, The only one that's slightly different is the PSG, talent league of legends team in taiwan but they're all under the talent umbrella we have uh, the same consistent approach when it comes to recruitment performance management coaching Um, Mm. the second half of this year has actually been incredible all the games that we're in we're like close to being first or delivering championships in which we're super excited by Uh, but yeah it's all under the talent umbrella consistent sort of performance management and recruitment and that's sort of why we've been able to have i guess good results across all our titles versus like um, you know, I, I know other teams might like sponsor teams where they basically have existing teams and just whack the the logo onto it, but we're not mm. believers of that because we feel like, you know, the, the culture that you drive, the value that you drive and the ideas around the philosophy, how your players think has to be controlled by us because that's the value that we provide. Right. So for example, you know, if we have a player come in, I want him to be able to think for the team. I want him to be able to take feedback. I want him to be somewhat humble and I want him to have a good work ethic because if you don't have those things as you know as well like you know doing a lot of sport and jujitsu and weightlifting if you don't have those basic things in sport and it's the same in esports it's like near impossible to be successful and so for us it's like we want to control Mm -hmm. that and I also feel like having we've made the mistake before of just like sponsoring teams but then just like we can't control like sort of how often they're training what time they're waking up are they following our systems because often they're not and then you just get really mixed results. And so we found that building it ourselves, controlling it ourselves with our coaches and our sort of systems that we have in place to control things, uh, is actually a lot better because it breeds a lot more consistency, which is one of the main things. that
0: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's obviously worked for you guys pretty well in, in legal agents thus far. And I guess like, I think it's a good case study for anyone to look at like the golden five in CS 1.6 with like Neo and Cuban and Lord and, and Pasha, mm. et cetera. You know, these guys, well, except for Pasha, those guys were together for the best part of 10 years as a whole. And then Pasha, mm. I think for maybe six or through everything, through when they were with ESC IC box, when they were with Virtus pro, when they were with whatever ABC team from CS 1.6 into CSGO. And, you know, through a team like that, you could see that, a lot of their strategy, because they were a team that we studied a lot when I was a semi-pro player, their strategy was to make it a 3v3 situation They would always win because they've been together for so long, their synergy was so great. So in the clutches, in the 2v2s, 3v3s, and 4v4s, they're always at an advantage when it comes to that yeah. situation. And they're a purpose-built machine because otherwise, like – you know, with my pro team, semi-pro team that I had in Australia, you know, without reaching those heights, we always had trouble getting a fifth player for exactly the same reason you were talking about. We had four people who were very on the same wavelength. We were all massive nerds, as in we used to just study the game like mad, more so than anyone else in Australia at that time especially. And we were very tight-knit, but we always had trouble finding that fifth. And, you know, when we finally found that right fifth, who also had the skill to boot, we were able to, you know, qualify for our live finals and whatever that we played in. But it's, it's interesting to see saying that you know it's the it's, it's definitely not the way that most teams are taking it. If if at all, they'll build it around one star player. So I saw like an article come out from Team Secret CEO saying, if you were to do it again, would you do it the same way? And he said, yep, the way that I did it and the way I'd do it again was i pick one of the best players in the world or the best puppy and then I'd build a team around him. And that's what we're seeing in Valorant now. You know, they'll pick up, you know, an esports organization will announce their new roster, which is actually just one person, <laughs> and then say they're going to build it around that person. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. do you know anyone else in the market that's doing what you guys are doing in that respect?
1: I mean, in in our region, not not that I know of, but I know, like for example, like a lot of the Korean teams are very much orientated towards, like um, you know, they, they find their own talent, they build their own talent out. I think there's a good academy system there, both for League of Legends and Overwatch. that's there, I think within like mm-hmm. Hong Kong, Taiwan, um, there've been some, but I think honestly, the sort of our our speed. Let's say we take League of Legends as an example, right? We got into that game November of last year. We got first championship within the first six months. We won the MSS, which was like a, an event between Vietnam and, and the PCS. We lost the final this time, which was a little bit disappointing, but we qualified for Worlds within the year. Um, if I compare it to some of the other teams, and should talk them a little bit, but like, you know, they've been around for like five to seven years and never got a championship within sort of the LMS or within the LST region, which is now combined to become the PCS. And so I honestly think that what we're doing, it might not like... It, it makes a difference because it shows that like, we're able to speed up very quickly and that we, you know, able to basically bring together a bunch of guys, like the guys that we have within League of Legends, of course, they're great players individually, but we've able to mesh them together into something that's like, you know, they've been at previous teams, like our jungler and our mm. mid laners, were at previous teams within the LMS that never won championships, but they came here and they won championships. And even mm. our Overwatch team yesterday and Korean contenders, we're just top of group A, Um, We went through trials. We came from Pacific. We're a no-name team, a bunch of players that people thought these guys were has-beens. And, you know, they played at big teams and weren't successful, but they came to us. And then we've been able to put our approach to coaching into it. And now they're like really good players collectively as a group and individually. So I think like, you know, for us, like one of the biggest things I think, which is important is, all the coaches that we hire, like we get guys that are like want to die basically for the team and work incredibly hard and also like want to be like fathers for the players. Because in the end, it's Mm. like, if you look at a top coach, it makes, it makes everything the difference. And if we have the same philosophy around teamwork, work ethic, you know, ability to take feedback, being humble, um, all those things just add up. And I think, you know, we just put a lot of emphasis on that. I think we put a lot more emphasis than any other team. At least within our PCS region, I would say in Korea, a lot of teams are doing a really good job when it comes to academy and, and building talent up. But yeah, I, I feel like just sponsoring a team is just like, it's, yeah, it's hard. You know, there's too much room for luck. And uh, in our business, it's like we want to be able to deliver championships because right now at our stage, we're not the biggest esports team in the world. We're like a small to medium sized one, like one of the best PR methodologies is to deliver championships, right? And so Mm. focusing a lot more on that and getting that right is good. And, you know, we start to use a lot more sports science stuff as well. I can talk a little bit about next year. Um, You know, we're getting wearables, um, which we start gonna incorporate into training. Um, We've also got a whole bunch of AI screen learning tools that we're working with a couple of startups from our investor network for like gaming. So like, for example, League of Legends, Um, Mm. one of the tools that we're looking at now um, actually has API plugs into the game. It can track everything within the game. And then we tie that in with wearable devices. So how the, how the player's feeling during the day and trying to collect that data and see, you know, take that to the next level, right? Did they not get enough sleep? Why are they playing like shit today? Why, why, when, on the days that they did play well, what were the factors contributing to that? When, how was their engagement level? What was the emotional state? You know, things like that we're trying to collect together and bring. Cause I think like, you know we talk about building modes for esports teams and performance for us is one of the biggest things and you know we want to add more and more of that stuff and also you know a lot of this is with paris as well um we're going to be taking a lot from them from the performance management side on how they run their club and how we can replicate some of that within sort of our organization as well.
0: one, one of the other things you said as well is you don't want to be reliant on good performances so do you guys have a performance bonus based sponsorship with with any of you with any of your brands at all? It's been something I'm thinking about a
1: bit that I haven't really seen in esports yet. Uh, I think generally some of the conversations we've had, like if you qualify for playoffs and things like that, I think there is. But generally we've kept it just straight fee. And then if we qualify for like MSI and Worlds, they get the right of first refusal to basically sponsor the team for those major events. Uh, For Mm -hmm. League, we have like that type of arrangement. For the other games like Arena Valor and Overwatch, where it's kind of like, you know, we just say, okay, regardless for the whole year, what tournaments we go to, it stays the same. So it just depends mm. on the brands. I know like, uh, in, um, in, in, in traditional sports, a lot of the, a lot of the brands are like, if I finish first, second, third, fourth, if I win a championship, you get particular bonuses. But at our stage mm. of conversations with a lot of the, the partners that we're talking to now, it's just purely a flat fee. Um, and then we just try and deliver value. Of course, the good thing is if we go to playoffs, they get more exposure, right? Because the logos and everything, and those games are longer, but yeah, we just mm. tend to do a, a flat fee for the time being. But I think over time, for sure, it's something that should be added in because, uh, you know, making playoffs, sometimes you end up like last in our summer championship, we actually played more games in the playoffs than we did the regular season. <laughs> so yeah, right. the exposure was like, uh, you know, even greater than the regular season.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that was similar to Team Nigma sent me through their deck um, from when they were still Team Liquid at TI, and even though they came second, they got the most screen time and most hours watched out of any team. And, you know, sometimes it, there might be advantage to going through the loser's bracket because then you get to play more games on screen. Yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> well, yeah, and I th- always thought that was interesting. You know, I, I started watching a little bit of um, the, the Formula One Drive to Survive on Netflix, for example, and they talk about that, a lot of performance bo- bonus-based things from their sponsors in that sport. And I, I do remember having a discussion with um, a rugby league sponsor um, uh, like a fast mover, fast moving consumer, good sponsor. After the like NRL um, State of Origin a couple of years ago, I got I got some tickets to go there, and yeah, it was interesting. Him, you know, they they sponsor one of the top six teams, and he was saying their best performance v cost is for the team to come third. So to get into the finals playoffs to win one game, but then to lose like the qualifier and come third, and for them that's that's their like sweet spot of like payoff yeah. versus there, yeah. you know they they're an advantage because they were like a front of jersey massive sponsor as well. So like that's mm. like the hours watched on television versus the amount we have to pay. That's the sweet spot. So of course we want them to win, but for for my books I'd rather them come third. <laughs> so I just thought that was pretty interesting because I know like when I was at Taken and and, um, and Corsair, there's no chance my budgets are not malleable in any way, and I think a lot of people mm. don't. Understand Understand this. Like my whole budget has maybe 5% leeway, if that, after I've confirmed it in November the year before. And yep. often the leeway really is if something drops out, then I can go look for something else. But most mm-hmm. of the time that something else is like 5K USD, 10K yep. a quarter. Like it's nothing. So yep. I think that's that's one thing that, you know, maybe is going to change. You know, Corsair is looking to IPO. Maybe they'll change the way that they do some of their marketing. Maybe they do do that performance-based now since I, you know, I left there just over two years ago. But from my experience with those endemics, like there's not a chance. They've always got a set budget. They've got a set amount of views they're trying to get out of it. And that's all confirmed November the year before.
1: Yeah. I mean, for the endemics, I feel like it's definitely a conversation that's a lot more like rigid, you know, because I, I completely agree with that. And that's sort of why we've mm-hmm. sort of directed more towards non-endemics recently for, for this year. And hopefully we can announce some, some big ones coming soon. But, you know, I think there awesome. a lot of brands are looking at gaming right now, but what I'm really finding, what they're really finding is feedback that we're hearing is that, you know, which teams do we work with, right? Because I think there's just a myriad of teams and there's a myriad of leagues and myriad of games. And so it's super confusing for a brand like let's say even if they're not from a non-gaming background they come in and let's just like what the hell like if i want to do thailand there's this game this game this game this game this, game, this league this league this team this team but then also i think there's like a loss of trust in some of the markets that we're working like in taiwan for example all the hardware brands hmm. like they're just like oh we've done it before but then we gave a lot of money up but then all we got was a logo on a on a on a jersey and on the banner of facebook and that's it like it didn't help us with anything else and so I think now, like we have to be smarter as an organization around sort of firstly, how we report data back, like, you know, like Nielsen's or whatever it is that we're doing, but having to fork up that initial money to show, okay, if we were to do it, like, for example, at Worlds, we we'll, us say, let's, we'll track the Paris logo, how often it appears. You can actually put a monetary value on it. you can de-risk it for the marketing guys, right? Because if they're going to invest mm-hmm. $100,000 into sponsoring your team and you provide $20,000 of value, guess who's You know job is most likely going to be on the line right and so delivering that and then the whole storytelling and content afterwards is really important as well now and so i think we're trying to just be more creative around that and and providing interesting content pieces and ways to engage promotion active ways to do that because um yeah i think like we need to be setting good examples in esports to brands particularly endemic brands from a team side here in asia around like what value we're actually providing because if we don't you're just gonna have all these brands try it and then like a year later they're just gonna have to be super jaded and be like mm, i don't want to work with these guys because you know my experience with x team is probably going to be you know they take that bias and then basically may bring it to another team so from that sense of mm-hmm. point of view i think um yeah we we've, we're still doing endemic brands for sure um, but we're also looking at non-endemic brands and seeing how we can help their audiences be you know the esports audience up into them as well so We'll see how those go, but um, yeah, it's it's and it's tough. I mean, this backdrop right now, you know, the economic backdrop is not good. But hopefully, things do change. Mm. Yeah,
0: and I, and I guess like one one other thing I got from what you were saying is around your methodical approach to to things you know saying that a lot of the time teams uh, like organizations will sponsor a team it's kind of seat of the pants it's like hey we want to get into league of legends let's just pick the best team we can afford let's chuck our logo on them kind of like a sponsor may if they don't understand how they enter the market but is your methodical approach is that you and your co-founders coming from that financial background experience you looking at like a hedge fund saying well you know what's our probability of success what's the potential payoff and you know revenue streams we can draw out of this and what's your you know what's your general um a checklist when you're saying yes or no i want to invest into league of legends is there a pathway that, that you went through to, to enter that market
1: yeah i think uh you know it definitely helps like we do spend a lot of time trying to control what risks and outcomes that we can right i think that's really important for us from from jazz and my perspective because you know like i don't want to leave things to chance and i think when you sponsor a team um even if I spend like a week with them, sitting down, talking to the players, understanding who their coach is and all these things, it's just too much room for error. And then if they're in their own gaming house, their own facilities training from home, I, I have no idea what they do. And there's a huge reputational risk as well, because like, for example, if, you know, one of them is, has a history of betting against their own team, I, I don't know these things and I can't control it and mention it to them and things like that, because there may be a history of culture of those type of things. So it's very hard. So that's kind of the way we think about it. So like when we looked at teams, we, we just take that approach of basically, you know, saying we're going to build it from scratch, right? So if we're going to do that, the first step is always the coach because the coach needs to have a very similar philosophy to the way we think. So we spent a week in Korea interviewing, I think like 10, 10, 15 different coaches, each one, you know, hour long presentation, hour Q and a, um, do a whole bunch of history and search and talk to the other players that they're done with. And then it starts with the coach. The coach starts first. Once we have the coach, then we then give him the autonomy and the power to build the team. Because it's like, I don't want, I'm not an expert at league of legends. I play the game, but to tell whether a top lane or a mid laner or a jungle or support or ADC is strong or not, it, it is completely out of my realm. So we say, okay, this is bringing the coach. And then we tell him, what do you need? Like, do you need analysts? Do you need a country manager? Do you need a player manager? Players, right? And they say, okay, these are the things that we look at. And so I need all these things. So me and Jazz will then go out and build a model and say, okay, based on this, let's say the sponsorship dollars that we can get coming in, what are the running costs for, let's say, a house plus all the utilities there plus the players' salaries. Then we kind of construct a business model around that and say, okay, this is feasible. We can do that. And so, and then we give the coach a budget. So, okay, this is your budget. This is how much you work with. And it's kind of like a football club, right? I will help Mm -hmm. him on recruiting players if they need to convince a player. Like one of the players in Hong Kong was like, "Uh, who are you guys? And I had dinner with him, basically told him our vision and our story. But then we let the coaches decide around the squad and um, basically how it progresses. We give them targets. We say, okay, if we're gonna invest this much, then you need to deliver a championship. You need to deliver us to MSI. You need to deliver us to worlds, right? Because we'll worry about the business side on the back end. You just worry Mm. about the performance side. And so that's generally how the approach that we take. yeah, but for league, like in PCS, I would say the budgets are like you know compared to the LPL teams. I won't go into too specific in numbers, but you know I'd say you know compared to LPL teams, our budgets are like literally a tenth or twentieth of what they're running. Um, simply because the sponsorship dollars are nowhere near as fat as the LPL. It's a franchise league over there. It's not a franchise league in the PCS. But um, mm. at the same time, you can still build really really competitive teams. And I think um, if we had a squad of five. Um, Maybe there would be some surprises at worlds but we'll see might still happen but the objective is um i feel like that's kind of the approach that we take very methodical consistent processes even before the coach as well we have like a full suite like sort of research approach to how we invest in a game like what are the cost cost revenue benefits what are the marketing benefits what are the brand awareness benefits you know these are the things that we're very much focused on because um you know we have investors right and we need to deliver ROI, and we need to have justifiable decisions as well around why we're doing things. Um, otherwise it's kind of like finger in the air type stuff. I mean, it, to a certain extent, mm. some of the factors are, but like I said, we try and remove as much things as we can that we can't control. And then obviously there is an element of luck with all this stuff that needs to happen sometimes. Mm. Yeah.
0: It's, it's interesting. It's, you know, it's interesting the mode, you know, th- that you guys are going through to talk about that and it, and it makes sense. And I guess touching on that, you know, touching on that budget, um, type thing again like is there is there a general contract value of of players that are that are competing in a space so like a lcs contract value i read is is an average of around 300k usd you know like a minimum um yearly salary for a cdl player in call of duty league is is 80k like are these are these players being paid full-time livable salaries still or are they considered yeah, yeah yeah
1: i mean yep the the top guys you know i can share that you know top guys are you know on like four five six thousand us a month right that that's pretty yep. standard um the minimum salary that is set is, is, is like, I think it not that high. It's like way lower than that. But um, there is a minimum standard that the publisher sets. Now um, for us, the way we kind of look at it is if in 2021, we get some sponsors, like bigger sponsors in, we'll reinvest it back into the team because it's, I mean, our objective is to build like a G2 for of Europe here in Asia, like be super competitive, like dominate the league locally, go to these global events, be super competitive there and then basically should talk everyone in the process at the same time. And so that's kind of like what we're trying to do, but in order to do that, of course we have investors, but we also need to be able to basically make sure that business model is sustainable, right? And that's through mm. our other revenue streams, whether it be clothing, partnerships, things like that, we're looking to push that. So um, I would say like, uh, you know, it, it is, there is set salaries and I would say in the PCS, a lot of players are paid very well compared to the cost of living in Taiwan. You know, it's not expensive to live in Taiwan, and like mm. even like two, three thousand US dollars a month, although like in a, like maybe in Hong Kong, that wouldn't get you anywhere. But in, in Taiwan, given the cost of living there is actually really, really good money, really, really good money. Mm. So relative to sort of the markets that we're in, I think it's good money. So um, I think it's kind of there. But compared to like the US and China and, and Korea, I think it's a huge gap between sort of where we are versus what, what, what they're paying you know.
0: Mm, mm. Yeah, it's yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I believe I remember this is like this is super old data, but you know the average salary in Taiwan after a bachelor's degree was somewhere around one to one to two and a half thousand US per month. So these guys are yeah. being paid, you know, above what people go to university for four years. Obviously, they've likely been playing league for six years to get there. So they've got yeah. a degree in, in their own.
1: Yeah, and and that's probably maybe their first contract, and after that they're they're jacked up, right? They'll be going up higher and higher, and then the good thing about the our region is that if you play well, you probably get picked up by the LPL and the LPL, you're, then you go there, then it's times 10 times 20 your salaries potentially in certain cases. Right. Cause those mm-hmm. guys are like, it's the same language too. Different world. Yeah. Same language as well. Culturally, relatively the same, of course, there's some, some, some differences, but like um, it's easy for those guys to transition into those markets. And a lot of LPL teams look at Hong Kong Taiwanese players because like uh, culturally when they move over there, not that big of a deal compared to say, you know, if someone from Korea moved there, it's kind of a big change in language and culture. Mm-hmm.
0: That's really true. And it's actually been a really, really poignant question come through in, in the LinkedIn Live as well um, from, from Adjin, just asking about how, how official are these deliverables that you're placing on the, on the coach and the players? Are they really cut and dry that says, you know, you must place at least top three, otherwise you will get cut? Or is it more just a, you know, a stern, fatherly conversation from you guys to them saying like, look, this is really what we expect of you?
1: Uh, for the players, um, the coaches are pretty strict. Uh, you know, I think it also just depends on the situation. Like this year, with the whole COVID stuff, it's, it's near impossible to transition players in and out because of the whole travel restrictions that are there. But for the coaches, yeah, we're, we're pretty strict about it. Like particularly if the budget that they want and the squad that they want to build is, is expensive. And, and, and we say, okay, we trust you because we've interviewed you through this process. Um, mm. And if you want this, then these are the expectations that the organization has set for you. And you should set for yourself and a lot of the coaches understand that right if i'm going to be asking for these things i need to deliver a championship and often times we'll give coaches maybe six months to a year to deliver that and obviously we most of the time we will have you know feedback loops that are occurring every one to two weeks i catch up with the, all the coaches on a regular basis talking about how things are and obviously we see the results and the good thing about our business is like particularly on the performance side you can't hide like if the team is playing like shit it's playing like shit. You're probably last in the league, but if you're doing well, then you're doing well. And so in that sense, you know, we're pretty strict. Like in certain cases, if coaches don't do well, like six months in, we're like, okay, sorry, but this is not working out for us. These are the things that you promised. It's not being delivered. And now if there is some leeway, it's obviously some management discretion between, the sort the of performance management guys, we go, okay, let's, let's try for another six months. But if it's not working, then a lot of the times we'll cycle the coaches out. Like I prefer to like the players as well. If they're not, if they've got shitty attitudes and somehow they've come through our process and we've missed it, like it's, you either want to be here to do what we want to do and follow that mindset and realize that, you know, we have a process that will help you achieve your objectives. But if you don't believe it and you have a crappy attitude towards it, then see, so yeah, like it, it, that's how the brutal nature of sort of the way we do things because mm-hmm. we're performance orientated and we can't, and as you know, like any company, if you have, one person who's a bad egg that toxic culture can spread quite quickly. So we're very cognizant of that. And we don't want players to be like shit talking, gossiping, creating issues when you should be focused on what your objective is. You're getting paid, you know, reasonably well to do this job. Um, and here at talent, we give you the best facilities, the food, everything is there your job should be purely focused on winning and that's what we're focused on so yeah we're pretty strict mm-hmm. about it and particularly any breaches of say cultural values that we hold at talent particularly from the player's perspective like we we'll hand out hefty fines and then if it doesn't work out then and we have appropriate sort of planning around sort of player transitions like if we have an existing member that can come in that can fill the role relatively well then yeah like good luck like that's, that's like that's the honest truth that we'll tell them, and you know we have very active conversations around feedback on what they need to show. We feel to be successful athletes, and if they don't show it. Then, yeah, you know, I mean, we've done our best in trying to explain to them what we think is. Mm. I always,
0: I always wondered when teams were going to become less of you know friendship and more of work. Like if you're if you're going to have an NRL team and they've got a starting roster of was it 50 or 55 something ridiculous, right? They're obviously not all friends. And they obviously don't choose who gets into the team. Sure, they might have a say if, you know, one person's really not gelling well but it's very unlikely that, you know, unless you're a, uh, you know, absolute superstar in that team, you know, I doubt they ask anyone but LeBron James who to sign up to his NBA squad. Maybe that's different because <laughs> yeah. there's only five yeah. people on a court, so you're a bit more tight-knit. Yeah. And I had this same discussion with Peter Dager, PPD, from Dota 2, who's won the international before, placed highly many times, you know, really kind of, you know, one of the greatest players to ever come out of North America in Dota 2. And, you know, my question to him was um, – I felt like in Counter-Strike, if I was to replace a player, even at a semi-pro level, it would take me a long time to get that that replacement player up to the level of where we're ready to do everything. Because in Counter-Strike, there's so many strategies where you have to come out third and you have to check corner A, B, C, D when 1 minute twenty sevens on the clock and there's a code name for that strategy. And, mm-hmm. you know, you've suddenly got to place yourself into 50 different strategies across seven different maps and understand that where... As he said in, in a game like Dota 2, it doesn't really matter. He said if they're a good player within two weeks, they're up to the level and gelling with the team just as well as anything else. And that it sounds a little bit similar to, to how you guys are wanting to run it there with, with that, where in the past it's been players and friendships. There's been, you know, the toxic two that kind of bounce between professional teams and they won't split up and they have to go with each other. There's been, you know, awkward teams which have, you know, like say with mine, we've got four people. And for us it was, you know, uh, it's, it's hard because in Counter-Strike, you often hold a site with someone as well. So you've got pairs of people that go around, but counter Strike's is mm. a 5v5 game. So how do you establish that? And, and if you're trying to fill a specific role that's you know oversubscribed in the industry, it's really hard or undersubscribed, it's even harder again. Um, but it seems like for you guys, you've gone really much more towards more of that professional sports team model, which is you know we choose who plays, we pick the best person for the job and you guys have to be friendly, but you don't have to be friends.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, in the end, we're here to win, right? And I think that's the, the thinking. And I completely agree with you. Certain games, is different. Like Rainbow Six Siege, for example, which is, I guess, somewhat close to CSGO. Yeah. The amount of calls that guy that team has is actually disgusting. Like, they have a playbook that thick of everything. Because in, in R6, like, even if there's, say, six pillars in a room, they have a call for each particular pillar because when you're coming around the corner, you're pre-firing a lot of the times. You need to be able to aim that there. And so what we're doing in, let's say, Rainbow Six title is that we have a young academy team that sits underneath it. basically we teach them all the calls and basically let them work on their raw strategy and when they move up into the senior team that's when you basically try and integrate them but at least from a calling perspective and the strategies for the maps they're on all those training sessions so they have all those details readily available so when they transition up hopefully it's a bit easier i agree with you for like league and moba titles it's definitely a lot easier to gel the team because of course it's kind of like um I don't know, like a little bit of football. If you have, like, I've played five-a-side football. If you have a player who understands the game really well, has good game sense, then like in a very short period of time, you can catch up. On that skill set but yeah i think it's really important also to plan right as clubs because it's like for our job is to create a system where regardless if a player comes or goes or a coach comes and goes that we have somewhat of a system that can be easily replicatable that people can come in and out and basically fill those particular roles so we do have a lot of online teams where of course we don't house them in our gaming houses but they're basically who who sit with our coaches and teams and go through strategies and calls and understand what the process is when they do get called up if and when they do get caught up it's a lot easier of a transition because they already know what the play style or the thinking of the coach is, which I think is really important because, um, you know, we need to be doing that because I think it's like talent retention and building for us is one of the most important things. We want to deliver championships. And so, yeah, we're constantly Mm. thinking about that, but yeah, I agree. Certain titles definitely for first person shooters, it takes a lot longer, but for MOBAs it can be a little bit easier. I definitely agree with
0: Mm. It's funny you were mentioning about the playbook while you were saying that. I went to my Google Drive and I found we, we've got our our um, CS One Point Six DE Inferno <laughs> strategy guide here, and it's yep. and it's five pages long yep. on our, on our Google Drive. Remember that we were yep. one of the we were, I think we we're the only team to take a notebook to our 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 tournament that we played live, and it wasn't received very well by the other teams. They didn't like us taking notes behind them apparently. But I mean that's that's just standard in esports these days, right? Massive amounts of Google drives that have strategies for for every map, every situation that can happen.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's why we're using a whole bunch of different tools. Like one of them is actually called insights.gg. I'll give them a plug, right? These guys, like we use them for Overwatch very extensively. And it's like mm-hmm. a AI screen-based learning tool that allows our coaches to basically um, take gameplay footage, condense it down very quickly into the key moments of the game, and then basically deliver feedback in a very constructive way. Um, that That is like tools that you need. Because like when we scream in League of Legends, the same thing. I don't want to have to like have a guy edit through like, you know, four hours of footage to find the key moments. You want a tool that can pick it up and say every team fight, every dragon, every pathing of the jungler, these are the things that you did wrong or right, or these are the things we need to do and give the coaches those tools to be more Mm. efficient and effective. And I think like next year as well, like we just want to continue to expand. Like you look in football, like they scout their opponents significantly, right? And so adding more of these data driven approaches around what our opposition is playing, how they path, how they move, uploading their previous gameplay footage, getting some sort of tool to pick it up, analyze it, and then give our coaches sort of tools that they can work with faster, Um, that's really important as well because, like, these things are the difference, right? And if, like, we have advantage and access to these tools earlier, um, it it makes a big difference to how we sort of uh, build our team, how we approach feedback, and how we manage performance management.
0: Mm, mm. No, it makes a lot of sense. So, yes, you know, one one other topic that um, we started to get into, but then diverted from is is what what makes PSG so successful in esports. So, like some other examples, we've seen some some basic collaborations between. Um, Fnatic and and Manchester. You know, the Manchester team walked out wearing a a joint jersey with Fnatic or a joint um, kind of jacket that they took off when they played. You know, we've seen a a collab drop with FaZe as well. We've seen AS Roma has had a a fairly in-depth partnership with, with Fnatic throughout Gfinity. You know, AS Roma, Fnatic playing in there. And then, you know, bits and pieces. There's a AFL team in Australia that has a current League of Legends team, which has no naming rights shared, but they own them as, a, as an equity, um, mm-hmm. as a 100% equity stake and a few others around too. But if you were to compare all of those to to PSG, I mean, PSG, and, and it says in the title of this LinkedIn Live, and we'll probably say in the, in the bio for the other podcasts as well, PSG has been involved with LGD from China for a long time. In Dota 2, you know, they delivered for them was five top five placements or thereabouts within within the international, just counting them here. So, one, two, three, four, five, yeah. So, 14, 15, 17, 18, 19, all fifth to second within Mm there, you know, at at $10 million plus prize pool. That alone before signing with you guys now that you've qualified for Worlds just shows that... That had so an an unfathomably amount of success compared to any other sports teams come into the space. So how, how do they support you besides just a joint collab merge drop or or just some naming rights? Like what makes it
1: special? Yeah. I mean, firstly, I want to talk a little bit about their philosophy and thinking of why they're doing these things in Asia. Right. So I think, you know, they've had a very smart approach when it comes to brand diversification. Look at when the, the investment came in at Paris, like they went from like a club that wasn't that well known to a club now globally that is recognized as, on top brands, and obviously making the Champions League final, having players like Neymar and Mbappe definitely helped them. Um, but, you know, even things that they've done with like Air Jordan, right? Like things like that have really helped explode their name and the celebrity endorsements that they get with like LeBron. And you know, LeBron's walked out many times with Paris Jersey. Uh, same with Beyonce, Jay Z, Justin Timberlake, you know, the whole works. But I think they're really about brand diversification. And I think that's really important because they actually have an active department that is focused around these things. And I think. That's that 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 is something that definitely shows at a club that they're focused on, the, which I think is important. The other thing I think, which is part of their strategy of why they're doing esports in Asia, is is because League One obviously is not the most popular league here in Asia. Like we have to be honest, like the Premier League is the number one league that's watched here. If you look at the teams that are supported, United, Chelsea's, your Arsenal's, your Liverpool's, your Everton's, like in Southeast Asia and in Greater China and even in China, these brands are so strong. And so mm. just by a product the fact that they're in League One, um, you know, the viewership is not always there. And so they have to look at alternative ways to expand their audience here in Asia. So with LGD, I think it's a perfect fit into mainland China to build that Paris brand that's right, so strong. And also mm. recently in Korea and Japan, they've opened up a whole bunch of uh, partnered with like brands to do street collabs as well, because fashion is a big part of what Paris has done as well. And so I think just, just to talk about their philosophy, it's just brand diversification, how do I get this Paris brand in front of as many people as I can in Asia and also build that awareness. And I think that's what's super cool about what they're doing. Um, just to talk about sort of how they support teams compared to others. I don't know how others do it, but from our perspective at a very high level, I can share a little bit more about sort of what we're doing with them. Firstly, on the commercial side, um, we work with their sponsorship team in Singapore, in Paris and in Shanghai on building partnerships on behalf of the PSG talent, League of Legends which I think is very valuable because if you look at the sponsorship deals they sign, obviously they're <laughs> they're significantly different from esports, but the network that they have is really strong. And for them to just have a sidebar conversation to say, Hey guys, what do you think about like League of Legends in Southeast Asia? Or let's say Nike's like, Oh, we're interested, but then you know, how about a little bit more and you can now work with the the talent team? I think that is very powerful. And if you look at what happened with LGD, the sponsorships that they've been able to receive um, and that is a byproduct of having that paris brand as well right because obviously it's so strong in regards to the global presence so commercially they're supporting us on that significantly on the marketing side of things there's obviously the psg esports psg sort of social media platforms which are basically integrated with us we have direct line with their social media team so if we want to post something get them to share something push certain things out that's all available what's also happening is that they're doing more integration of esports into the PSG brand. So, in the future, perhaps it won't be separated. It will just be under the PSG brand, which even creates more value because you're not PSG esports, you're just PSG, right? Because they've mm. got like the handball teams, they've got the judo teams, they've got the women's soccer team. So, they're trying to integrate more of their teams into the actual PSG ecosystem. Um, yeah. Further to that, on the performance side, we actually will be spending at least once or twice a year in Paris with our coaching staff and our players to observe, learn, and basically grow together on how they manage their football players, their judo team, their handball team, so that we can take lessons from that and apply it to eSports. Because eSports right now, as you mentioned, a lot of teams perhaps aren't thinking about it. Although we have a slight philosophy around performance, I can still learn a lot more, and as talent as an organization can continue to learn a lot more uh, around how they manage. Because even minor details, like what lighting you use in the office, what type of food you eat, when you go to bed, what time you wake up, what are you drinking, what are you, drink, what are you eating before the game, what are you even during breaks? All these little things we're trying to develop and grow further and build a playbook within eSports. And I think Paris definitely is super open to us going there multiple times and basically working with their performance and coaching staffs and say, this is what we do. These are the things, and this is why it matters. And also it's good to show our coaches, hey, you know, at the highest level of sport, this is what is done on a day-to-day basis. And we need to try and hit that level, even if it's like 50, 60% of that, because the physical training obviously is not as intense, but we need to learn on that. And then lastly is on the merch side. And so, you know, we have a swathe of uh, merchandise opportunities there. Fabienne, who looks after the, the sort of partnership side there, is incredibly open to working with ideas when it comes to merch. And so even if you look at the logo that we were, that Paris allowed us to do with the bird, cresting over the PSG logo. I think that's been awesome because from a fashion perspective, it's a really great combined logo and they're super open to mm. doing things like this. And even if we bring in, let's say a headset sponsor or a gaming chair sponsor, we can actually go to PSG and be like, Hey, um, you know, secret lab wants to do a, a chair with us, right? Can we do it? And if they're okay with it, we can go take their IP and do a lot of these commercial opportunities, which I think is very powerful because the PSG brand obviously is, is way stronger than Allen's currently. Cause obviously we're still a very young organization. But to be able to combine the two and then market it and push it together, I think is really, really strong. And so I just want to say that from from my perspective, their team is very available to us, which is really important. And also they're very open to and they're figuring out better ways how we can integrate into PSG and leverage their network uh, in order to help them build their brand in Asia, which I think is a really important thing because... um, they're open, and that's the and that's the biggest thing, right? Because they get esports, they understand it, they understand the value that it brings, the audience that it brings for them, and then they're trying to support it in many different aspects, which I think is really powerful compared to you know some of the other teams. But I, I don't know what the other teams do, but from Paris's perspective, these are the things that they're supporting. And um, you know, we have dedicated resources that we can call upon at any time to say, hey, what's this? What's that? Can we have some help with this? And they're actually very open to supporting us, which is I think is very. Very, very good from a club that you know is doing many things and um, also manages one of the biggest football clubs in the world, right?
0: Mm, yeah, and and while you were talking, I was I was looking at um, at their Twitter as well, just like the stuff you were saying. I never realised that they 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 already operate like an esports team. They've got a judo squad. They've got an esports team. I can see yeah. it here. They've got a they've got a female squad as well. They've got a different Twitter for Brazil, Japan, the UAE, Indonesia. Yeah they've got a different Spanish one. Obviously they've got their French one as well and an English one. And they've also got a handball team. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's crazy compared to any other team. They seem to be so diversified. And the other, the other really interesting thing that you said too, that I think I haven't thought enough about or like other people think about too, is it's not just about like, like what's the goal for this. It's not just the goal for them to get younger, new audiences. It's a goal for them to get into Asia, mm-hmm. which is so the so the joint goal, um, And I think that's an important one, too. And I think people forget, in my opinion, that's why FaZe's investors are so um, interesting to me. Clinton Sparks told me that he brought Pitbull to FaZe because he wanted that Latin American audience. You know, they, they've got investors from the UFC, Tyron Woodley, the ex-middle, um, ex-welterweight champion of the world. So, they can resonate with that market if they choose to. They've got rappers like Offset who are at the top of the game. Now, they've got top NBA players as well. So, it's mm-hmm. not just the fact that they're just getting money and they're getting stars who have Instagram clout to shout them out, but they're ingraining themselves in every part of cool culture. With the rappers, with the singers, with the DJs, with the fighters. And that's that's really seems to be what their goal is. Because there's no way that FaZe couldn't raise capital from anyone. They're so wildly successful. But it's the fact that they're picking and choosing that for exactly that reason. And it seems similar with with PSG, is, you know, okay, why, you know, why are they in some of this stuff? Well you could say, you know, handball is is a very big niche sport. And I mean that Twitter account alone has a hundred thousand followers. You know, getting into eSports, it's a way, as you said, to to kind of use that Coke versus Pepsi Challenger brand mentality to, okay, how can we attract Asian fans by not having to, you know, get a football team over in there and have a sister team? Why don't we get into eSports, which is another thing that they enjoy and has relevance with the market and younger people as well. And I'm sure they've done very similar with judo and, and some of the other stuff they decided to get into too. So, yeah, it's really interesting. That's really interesting.
1: Yeah. Ah, it's cool, man. I, I must admit, like, it's uh, it took a while to get the deal over the line because there was a lot of things that we needed to discuss. But overall, like, um, you know, now the operationally, there is we're working through all the sort of processes, it's only been like three months, but I think we've done a lot together. And um, you know, we, mm. we speak very regularly with their team, um, with the CEO, the head of creative partnerships, um, their marketing team. Yeah, it's like we have access, it's not like we like here's the paris logo good luck for the year see you later like we actually yeah. have conversations with them nearly on a daily basis in certain things like even for worlds right now planning a whole bunch of stuff like we're doing some stuff with nike potentially and you know we can share some of that and it's going to be super exciting and they're supporting us and all those things and opening doors for us which i think is really powerful because you know otherwise like you know if it's talent knocking on the door we're, we're still obviously our growing organization but you know have paris to do it on our behalf say like let's get something done for worlds then you know that's 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 really powerful right so that's where we see the value of, of, of this mm. and yeah like i said they're, they're they're supportive and they're not like it's just a logo good luck it's like um they're, they're actually finding ways to deliver value to the organization both revenue marketing and commercial opportunities as well. which i think is really
0: and we've definitely both heard of that example before. It's just a logo. Good luck. <laughs> it definitely happens a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's like checking that diversity yeah. box, you know, you just hire yeah, a diverse yeah. person you go, done, I'm diverse. And it's say, yeah, I think yeah. they go, done, wear eSports. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, we've both definitely seen that. So I guess like one, one other thing I wanted to, to talk about is, um, you know, you guys going through a funding round, um, you know, throughout the corona, coronavirus period. Obviously, you're on our, our pitch show and things like that as well. I'd love to get your opinion as, you know, an ex-investor and then now a current investee, you know how you see investments into the market especially into esports teams you know teams have gotten have been uh, you could say 90 percent of the attention probably for the past 3 years with an investment and now it's really starting to go towards facilities and some and some others but also it's been a lot of the criticism people like mark cuban calling a team specifically in the US being a terrible investment you know in that paraphrasing his words and and some other opinions around that too so i'd love to learn from you like what was that experience like for you guys um how close are you to, to closing your round and, and et etc cetera, et cetera?
1: yeah i mean first thing i can say is the and i can announce it here for the first time we're pretty much done for our round um some final bits and pieces here but um no, it's done it's a two million dollar round um and uh, we're very happy with getting it done given the whole backdrop of where things are at um you know this year has been a crazy year for markets, a crazy year for economies, and a crazy year for investors. But um, mm-hmm. at the same time, I think it's, the whole COVID situation has helped us a little bit because of the fact that you know gaming has become a lot more mainstream. Esports has garnished a lot more attention and perhaps it's accelerated that attention over this last six to seven, eight months of where things are at. Uh, mm-hmm. Speaking with investors, I think if you look at sort of where our investors are and who are our investors, they tend to be I know with individuals, family offices, and some venture capital platforms or funds, um, but they're very much orientated towards understanding or have seen the entertainment and sports space. Uh, like some of our individual investors are like part owners of other major franchises globally, right? And they understand how sports works and they see the digital version of esports and they're focused on that. And it's a long term game. They understand, like a lot of our investors, we're not going to be turning our. Profit like tomorrow, right? This is a five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10 year project around building a digital franchise that can hopefully get to a stage that's like the Lakers, Dallas Cowboys, New York Yankees type thing, where hopefully mm. the Paris, the Talon logo is recognizable globally and the commercial opportunities that come with that will be supported and developed. And I think um, the, the difference is that I guess here in Asia, I think a lot of the teams have sort of seen is that our cost base is significantly lower. And so the ROI when it comes to sponsorship dollars, when it comes to getting publisher fees and things like that and and building out our business it's 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 not as bad right because i know some of the salaries in the u.s incredibly high to run a league of legends squad and i think the sponsorship and the tv rights deals aren't quite there yet but here in asia like like i said we run a budget for our league team probably 10th or 20th or 30th of some of the bigger teams globally so that makes a lot more sense in regards to an roi perspective some of the venture capital platforms are kind of um looking at it from a digital franchise point of view but also looking at it as a content play and of course that's something that we're still building at the moment i wouldn't say we're the strongest at that but like we're trying to look at ways that we can continue to diversify into the entertainment space because um there's a lot of moving parts of general gaming esports content within our region that is like uh, a little bit like it's not like we can just do english right we have to localize it because i put an english video out in thailand no one watches it so finding ways to create content in those niche markets is really important. And I think one of the key things that was a big differentiating point for us that helped us a lot was the fact that we're trying to build an APAC team, right? We're not just staying in Korea, Because it's like, like if we were to go into Korea, it wouldn't make sense because you're going up against T1, you're going at DRX, you're going up against all these huge names are very well funded by these large chairbles in Korea. But... T1's not in Hong Kong. T1's not in Taiwan. T1's not in Thailand. T1 is not going to be in Indonesia potentially, right? In Philippines. But we have that strategy and that mindset to go, okay, we're going to go from Japan all the way down to Australia, of course, different titles. And there's a lot of localizations in those markets. And that's what I think was one of the key differentiating factors for us, the fact that we had this APAC strategy. Obviously this year, we couldn't travel at all. We couldn't expand into any games because of the whole COVID situation. But Mm. the fact that we already proved it, um, and I'm not saying we're the biggest team in those markets, but the fact that we can cover multiple markets, each year. and also some of the commercial opportunities that we're having now, having multiple regions, is actually being beneficial for us because then we have brands coming to us who say, "Hey, I want access to four markets rather than one," um, and so that's kind of some of the thinking. But um, I would say it's not for everyone. Some of the traditional investors that we spoke to, like real estate people or people who are like used to look at equities, private equity, you know venture capital from a tech tech side, like I'm building the next Facebook, I'm building the next Uber. Um, this is not a, this has not always been a good fit for them because they're like, how does this business scale? Right. Cause they're like, uh, I can't, you know, Facebook is, I want to be able to push it to billions of people. And I think we have to be also realistic when we pitch this business that it, it, it will have value over time, but it's like, it's not going to be at the scale of, you know, a Facebook because if your fund is focused on, exiting billion dollar valuations i hope maybe esports teams can that in like let's say four or five years then we Mm -hmm. have to be realistic and tell them it's not the case so it really just depends on the investor appetite i would say most investors um, who look at it are are kind of from the media entertainment sports space and that's where they see the value and the ability to kind of grow that because that's something they're comfortable and, and and understand but my dad for example who's a real estate guy. I explain this shit to him. And he's just like, why the fuck would you even do this? Why? Like, it makes no sense to him. Cause he's like, you can't like, I, I, I don't know if I have a house, then, you know, I know how much it's worth. If I do this X, X, X to it, this is where it is. But I think, um, you know, that's mm. just the different mindsets when it comes to investing. And, um, yeah, we've been very fortunate that we've had really good investors who are, are backing us. Um, and the pitch was great as well, actually you know, we had one of the gentlemen there join us as well. So it's been um, really good in that sense. But I would say you have to be selective about the investors you talk to because sometimes going to like um, big sort of traditional sort of houses that are looking at an investment in a certain way and pitching esports, it can be be kind of difficult. And, yeah, they just don't – like it's just very foreign to them and it's very hard for them to understand where like the key exit strategy is um, Mm -hmm. around sort of what eSports is present?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I feel like teams are going to potentially struggle with, you know, a lot of the ones that you were saying, um, you know, in tier one markets that are spending a lot of money right now. You know, I guess like cloud nine came out and said, they lose a million dollars a year on their CSGO team, which is okay if you've raised enough money and then you've got that pathway to profitability, but it's concerning in a market that's only worth a billion dollars that you can lose million a million sure. in team, one team in, yeah. in one game, in one region. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, and I must admit, like in the in the t one regions, the salaries of course are incredibly high, right? And I get that it's whatever mm-hmm. it is like someone paid that amount and then it just follows through. But here in Asia, I mean we just have to be very conscious at our side of talent, we try and keep the budgets as tight as we can. Um, and we have to be realistic with the players and our management teams, right We'd be like, hey guys, like you can't spend this amount if you can't bring in revenue because at least be able to break even on the teams. The good thing is that a lot of the publishers in the region are now providing support to basically make the teams at least be able to break even on the salaries given the support that they're giving. And everything you make up on top, like your overhead management, office costs and mm-hmm. blah, 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 you have to try and make that yourself. But I think, um, you know, some of the publishers are doing a better job here in Asia. Um, and also because our cost base is just not as crazy, you know, because we're in developing markets versus like really well-established markets like the U.S. You know, it's, it's very different.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And, you know, definitely like in positive towards teams, one of your advantages, you know, one of my friends is looking at an exit at the moment. He has a gaming agency that looks after YouTuber talent and Twitch talent. And, you know, he sold, he sold $4 million since since the coronavirus period took off, you know, in, in mm-hmm. brand deals as a whole. So he's doing quite well. But his issue is his exit multiple is extremely low because as an agency, you don't really own much. You own the contracts for the period of time that the people are there and you own like a little bit of clout with, you know, some of the top talent might know who you are, but you don't own a brand at all. And there's no brand to sell. So I think he's a little disheartened the fact that, you know, he can sell Four million dollars worth of revenue, but he's not even going to get a four million dollar buyout offer, let alone a multiple. You know, on top of that. Um,
1: well, the so. the option there is uh, get him to speak to an esports team and then run that revenue through the esports team, and they can deliver the value from them. Because you see a lot of that happening within the space's consolidation of revenues, right? Because it's like mm. esports team value multiples, are, um, and that that happens always in finance. You see that a lot on the reverse listings in various markets. But yeah, I mean, it's just basically an opportunity there to be able to. But yeah, it is true. I mean, we have the brand, right? That's the difference. And the commercial opportunities that come with that brand later on are very powerful because if you get to a stage where you have you know, tens of millions of followers globally, uh, you know, you can do certain things like Team Liquid recently did a a paywall behind some of their like sort of particular content platforms, right? You can get early access similar to what a lot of football mm-hmm. clubs does. And even if 10% of your fans sign up to that, that's really powerful because you don't need to market that. That's already there. You capture it, you put it in and you can build mm. that out. So definitely, I think from the brand perspective, and even the clothing side, look what clan phase has done. It's freaking amazing because congrats to them. I'm in complete awe of how they've done it, but that mm. brand that they've built just markets itself now, right? You put any piece of clothing, any collab on that, and it just sells out like hotcakes. And and mm. that's sort of the value of that brand being able to be pushed. So I think, yeah, for sure. But you know, a lot of these agencies as well, I mean, credit to them, they're fantastic at doing their jobs. I mean, it's just like, um, it's a skill set that's very hard. and. A lot of esports teams need to be better at doing it because um, right now, I would say, you know, we generally here in Asia, I feel at least in where we are, not done the best way. Yeah. yeah,
0: for sure. So we're gonna we're gonna have to do a follow up of this. I think after a couple of months to talk about, um, you know, some of the problems that you guys have had getting players to the League of Legends World Finals and <laughs> and also you know where you guys take your PSG partnership. But you know, besides. Um, besides the general of, you know, you guys have worlds coming up and you've got two replacement players. What else is on the on the new horizon for talent? What, what sort of trends are you looking at? What are, what are you looking to, to launch?
1: Yeah, so definitely on the merch stuff, um, in the next couple of months, you'll see some stuff happening um, there. Um, we'll have uh, a number of different collaborations with Nike, PSG, our own line, and Carnival in Thailand. So that's going to be super exciting. Um, mm. The designer for that X ex-Nike, um, streetwear. And, um, yeah, we we're super excited by the stuff that we've done and, uh, it looks really cool. And I hope that like the whole marketing and PR campaign that we have behind it's going to be super exciting. So look out for that. That should be really, really interesting. Um, we will have a number of big partnerships that we're going to be announcing going into 2021. We've been working through those last couple of months. Um, so that should be really, really cool. Some of the brands endemic, non endemic brands. So it should be super exciting to be able to share for sort of what we're building in that space. And I think, the content that will come with that, I think will also be super interesting. Um, mm. And yeah, we're still looking into Southeast Asia for mobile games, you know, looking for new opportunities to play into new titles. Um, definitely this whole coronavirus situation this year has made it really difficult to expand, but you know, markets like Vietnam, Indonesia, Philippines are just super interesting for us. So we're looking at that. And then, yeah, lastly, there's a whole bunch of um, collegiate tournaments that we'll be starting to run more of as a, as our own IP. Um, mm-hmm through uh, Hong Kong and Taiwan through various titles to kind of help build a community within our region. Uh, we feel like mm-hmm. uh, having more of these tournaments on a regular basis will help sort of foster more talent. Also allows us to scout as well. So, um, but uh, you know, these are some of the things that we're working towards and uh, yeah, it's, 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 busy. Esports is like, it's constantly nonstop. Worlds has been uh, difficult and uh we can talk about that next time but fingers crossed we can get through the playing stage and uh, get to the group stage get our squad together and then show the world um you know our region hong kong taiwan actually has a lot of fantastic players
0: i really Mm. truly believe
1: that it's just about giving them a platform
0: yeah. And one other thing I want to talk about next time that I would suggest anyone, you know, whether you're listening live now on LinkedIn or Twitch or back to the audio only or video only version of the podcast is just take a look at the way that Talon delivers its sponsorship campaigns and thinks about itself as much as an agency as an esports team. And that's a topic I think we should talk about next. But the types of content and stuff that you guys do, I think, is what drew me to you and is what drew, you know, the investor that, that we introduced to you guys as well for exactly the same reason. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's a it's a topic that I'll be talking about a little bit next week for anyone who's watching live. Um, if anyone's listening to the audio or video version of this, it'll probably be posted afterwards. But I'm on an eSports bar panel next week around monetization in esports and we'll likely be talking about some topics like that too, about how teams are operating as an agency and some of those kind of trends to pick. So yeah stay out for that but if anyone wants to connect with you personally online sean or, or your team where's the best place to follow
1: yeah i think for western audiences like because uh, we do a whole bunch of different languages so um yeah linkedin is easy just i mean uh my profile's available hit us up talent esports there as well um i think the twitter is just uh, talent esports so if you want to follow the league of legends team it's psg underscore talent um so twitter is probably the best place to engage with us our facebook pages tend to be in like thai chinese korean so um language might not, might not be the best, but, um, yeah, feel free to reach out to us. And then if you want to send us any details, info at talentesports.com, that's our email. If you want to reach us for anything else, um, we track that on a regular basis, happy to chat. And, you know, we're always open to building the awareness of esports and education in the space and getting people to understand what's happening here in Asia. So, you know, people are interested to understand what's going on here. Let us know and happy to chat more, man. And appreciate getting the opportunity to talk on the show, bro. I appreciate that. And it has been good.
0: Yeah, no worries, man. No worries at all. There's a lot of appreciation coming through in the live chat. So other people enjoyed it too. And I did as well. So thanks, man. And and thanks to everyone for tuning in, whether you're live on Twitch, LinkedIn, listening to the video or the audio only version of this podcast. Once again, we're doing this every week. So hope you guys enjoyed. We'll see you soon.